Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Our website is religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck. I'm doing a series on Israel-Palestine, a four-part series, and this is the third part, and it's my second conversation with Rachel Fish of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. Welcome back, Rachel, to Religion for Life. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, as you know, um, I am a commissioner to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church that's uh, meeting this summer. And um, among uh, the General Assembly takes on all kinds of issues, social justice issues, environmental issues, all kinds of things. And, and some of those issues are related to Israel-Palestine, and a number of resolutions have, have come before the board. And, and so I, I want to, your opinion, I wanted you to be on the program to to offer your thoughts on this. I mean, many things have been said, many things have been written, and so I'd like you to give you a chance to, to voice your thoughts on these issues as you are uh, a, an expert in, in Israel history. And um, oh, one of the items that's been written is a study guide uh, by the Israel-Palestine Mission Network of the Presbyterian Church called Zionism Unsettled. Uh, have, you, have you read that? Yes, I have. And, and and I was just wondering if you could offer your opinion on that. Do you uh, think this document uh, is truthful? Is it helpful? Is it a distortion? Um, the, the study guide, Zionism Unsettled, is actually very problematic. Um, to begin with, it was developed um, with the help of the Sabil North American Organization, the Friends of Sabil um, happened to be the church in Israel affiliated with Naim Atik. And their entire theological perspective is based upon liberation theology, which has the presuppositions of trying to articulate a theology for those who are viewed or perceived as oppressed, and wanting to change the discourse or the dynamic between those who hold power and those who are in a more weak or vulnerable position. Liberation theology is also similar um, in some sense to the idea of supersessionism and replacement theology, but instead of using those types of theological terms, they use the term liberation to focus on the power struggle uh, between two peoples or two types of communities. So that's very problematic um, in terms of the affiliation between the Presbyterian Church and Sabil um, and Naim Atik. The second piece that's very problematic about Zionism Unsettled is that what it's attempting to do is really create a veneer of um, respectability um, and respectability by really employing and utilizing ideas from revisionist academics within the field of Israel studies who have a very clear political agenda. Their political agenda relates to the delegitimization of the state of Israel. And their positions in academia are also used um, by the text Zionism Unsettled to enhance their pejorative views about Israel. So it's not at all what I would call a balanced text. It's not at all what I would say um, promotes really um, 
serious inquiry and investigation about the Israel-Palestine conflict or the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians, but rather it has a very clear agenda. Its agenda is to delegitimize and demonize the state of Israel. It tries to do it both cloaked in terms of academia and as well as in religious theological language. And I think a lot of very good uh, people who have um, and hold liberal values um, and have the intent to do good in this world and to make the world a better place will be seriously duped and misled by this uh, piece of propaganda. Uh, you, you mentioned um, that uh, the text uses liberation theology, that um, speaking as an oppressed people. Uh, critics of Israel have said uh, that the situation of the Palestinians is one of occupation and oppression. Uh, do, do you think um, there is a case for that? Uh, well, first I would have to separate how we are defining who the Palestinians are. Um, if we're talking about the Palestinian people who are living outside of Israel proper, for sure there is a conflict, and that conflict can be discussed in a variety of terms, whether it's political, whether it's economic, whether it's religious, and I'm happy to look at each of those with you. If we're talking about the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel, um, that's a very different situation than those who are living outside of Israel proper. Um, I also would just have to step back and say the term occupation uh, was not a term that existed within this conflict until 1967 when Israel did um, control territories that were seized in a defensive war in 1967 because Israel was going to be attacked by the surrounding Arab countries. And one of the consequences of that war, because as we know, wars are very messy, um, was the control of territories for the West Bank, the Golan Heights, Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, and the Sinai Peninsula. Um, in some cases, territories were given back, like the Sinai. Um, Gaza was eventually given back in a unilater unilateral decision made by, at the time, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. Uh, discussions about how the West Bank should be um, div divided is a real conversation that's taking place, both in terms of the political conversations on the ground between Israelis and Palestinians, as well as with outside parties like the European Union and the United States. Um, and East Jerusalem and the Golan have remained part of Israel proper, uh, partly because of strategic military concerns. So Israel has a precedent for returning land and has done so in order to have peace with its neighbors, and it's not opposed to that by any means. Um, but in order for that to take place, there has to be a willing partnership. Um, so are there real challenges in the West Bank? Absolutely. Um, does Israel control territories in the West Bank that are very problematic? Yes, and there are Israelis within Israeli society who are committed Zionists who will argue that those concessions towards territories have to be made, but not at the expense of Israel's security. Um, are the Palestinian people oppressed? Yes, but mostly by their own Palestinian leadership and government, not necessarily because of Israeli authority or control. Well, I want to go back again to um, uh, the, the document Zionism Unsettled and uh 
and, and ask you this. The thesis of, of this study guide on, on page nine is this. I'm just going to read part of this paragraph. It says, this study explores uh, the theological and ethical exceptionalism of Jewish and Christian Zionism. Uh, and then the, the last sentence is, the fundamental assumption of this study is that no exceptionalist claims uh, can be justified in our interconnected pluralistic world, end quote. And, and so my question to you, does the study guide have a point? I mean, the questions that it raises are this, is it possible uh, to privilege a religious or ethnic group and at the same time uh, be democratic? Or to put it directly, is it possible to have equality and justice for non-Jews in a Jewish state? So I think the question you raised about <clears throat> is it possible to privilege a religious or ethnic group and be democratic is a very important question. And I would ask, you know, to you and your listeners, are places like Greece and Iceland and Sweden and Denmark and Spain democratic? Do we consider those nation states to be democracies? And I would venture to say that most individuals would answer yes. Those are democratic entities as we understand them in the 21st century. I would then point out that in Iceland, Sweden, and Denmark, there is a national church, a state official church, the Lutheran Church. In Spain, it's the Roman Catholic Church. In Greece, it's the Orthodox Greek Church, which prevails as the dominant faith. In all of those cases, not only do they have official state recognition of those churches, but they also say that they protect the freedoms and rights of all peoples to worship as they believe. That's very similar to Israel as a Jewish state. If you read the Declaration of Independence, it makes it very clear that Israel will have a Jewish character, but by no means is Judaism or Jewishness supposed to infringe or impede other religious belief systems and ethnic groups. Similarly, in terms of the question about ethnicities. Uh, Japan, the way one becomes a citizen, can become a citizen of Japan, is if you have blood, Japanese blood. Uh, you privilege those who have parents who are national from nationals from Japan, similar to Germany. If the parent is of German descent, of German blood, they receive priority in terms of their citizenship. Similar to the law of return in Israel, those who are children of Jews receive priority in terms of their citizenship. That doesn't mean that there are not other ways to gain citizenship status. There are naturalization ways, like all these other democracies. So what I would say in response to your question is that it is possible to privilege a religious or ethnic group and be democratic. That does not necessarily mean that there aren't tensions. There are surely challenges. Um, especially in the 21st century, in a time in which I would argue there are many who make the claims that this is a flat world, like Thomas Friedman has said, it's a world of globalization. People have advocated, for example, in the European Union, you no longer need certain borders between nation states. You can have one sense of currency. But even in a place like Europe, we see that people still very much identify with their own particular tribal, ethnic, national groups. Those identities have not dissolved, even in the 21st century. So the second part of your question says, is it possible to have equality or justice for non-Jews in a Jewish state? Of course it is. Just 
like it's possible to have sense of equality and justice for non-Roman Catholics in Spain or non-Orthodox Greeks in Greece. Um, again, I think because the issues in Israel are regularly put under a microscope, and because Israel is the only Jewish state in the community of nation-states, there's a hyper-focus on this question. But what we need to remember is that Israel is actually put in a comparative perspective not unique to other nation-states that privilege particular religion and ethnic groups. It's actually America and the American experiment with the United States that is unique. Because when we as Americans look at the issue of privileging a particular ethnic group or another religious group, it's very, it feels very um, anachronistic to us, and it's anathema to what we as American citizens have been taught and how we have been raised, particularly because we are used to the idea of separation of church and state, which is the lens, the prism through which we view these kinds of issues. But in the majority of the world, it's precisely particular ethnic groups and religious groups that have formed communal identities and have then become nation-states. So I would say there are definite tensions and challenges for all of these groups and for all of these countries in terms of thinking about how they balance uh, the privileging of a particular ethnic group or a particular religious group. Um, while protecting other minority groups and ensuring that minorities have the access, the rights, the freedoms protected that they deserve, um, and that the democratic values and the liberal values of which we in the West are so accustomed to remain and prevail, but by no means do I think that they're contradictory or unresolvable. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Rachel Fish. She is the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center at Brandeis University, and this is a discussion on uh, Israel-Palestine. And uh, the justice arm of the Presbyterian Church uh, is responding in part uh, to the call of the boycott, divest, sanction movement uh, from uh, Palestinians. And uh, I'd like to ask your opinion of the BDS movement. I, I just I looked it up online to see what their three goals were, and its call and its words were to one, and again the occupation. You talked about the word occupation before, uh, and the occupation and colonization of all Arab lands occupied in June '67, and dismantling uh, the wall. Uh, second, recognizing the fundamental rights of Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel to full equality. And third, uh, respecting, protecting, and promoting the rights of Palestinian refugees uh, to return to their homes and properties as stipulated in UN Resolution 194. Uh, what is your opinion of these demands? So my opinion of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement in general is that it's a very problematic movement. Um, its intended purpose is to try to dismantle the existence of the Jewish state as we know it, and often and unfortunately um, employs anti-Semitic references and attitudes while trying to engage in this um, agenda. So the BDS movement actually specifically began with respect to Israel in 2001. 
and it began in 2001 on college campuses, um, specifically at Harvard and MIT, my backyard, when particular faculty members and university administrators thought that this would be a way to raise awareness about the discourse surrounding Israel and the Palestinian conflict. Um, at the time that the BDS movement began in 2001 towards Israel, uh, it very much modeled itself after trying to um, fight the apartheid issue in South Africa. And the word apartheid, which is actually misused in the Israel case, was often um, used as leverage in the BDS movement to try to compare Israel to apartheid South Africa and to make the claim that Israel uh, was and is an apartheid state because of how it creates um, distance or, um, or segregation between the Israeli Jewish population and the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel, as well as the Palestinians in the territories. When this happened on college campuses, it was the president of Harvard University at the time, President um, Summers, Larry Summers, who made it very clear that this movement was anti-Semitic in effect, if not intent. I think that phrase is a very important phrase when trying to contextualize what the purpose and the agenda is of the BDS movement. Um, in terms of what they say that they are doing, I would take it one by one. The idea of ending the occupation and the colonization of all Arab lands um, and dismantling the security fence. So firstly, I'm not sure how the BDS movement thinks that it's capable of ending the occupation or what um, the or coming up to some sort of peaceful relationship or agreement between Israelis and Palestinians when there have been people involved since 67 trying to do that in a much more productive and dialogical, meaning in a dialogue framework, rather than an antagonistic framework. So it's a real question to me how they think that this, the BDS movement can address this issue. In terms of the colonization claim, Israel is often labeled by the Palestinians and by Arabs as a colonialist entity. But colonialism really suggests that Jews are coming there and intend to go back to their mother country. This is not a typical situation of colonization. The Jews are going to their mother country. That is Israel, the home of the Jewish people, Eretz Yisrael. Uh, we discussed that in our last conversation. So this is not as if it's the great empires of the world um, exporting their citizens to a foreign country to extract the riches of that society and the resources of that society and to bring them back to their home motherland. That's not the situation. So the word colonization has a clear um, agenda, and it suggests that Israel is an imperialist, colonialist entity, which it is not. Um, in terms of dismantling the security fence, we have to remind ourselves that the security fence was created in order to thwart terrorist attacks, especially at the height of the Second Antifada, 
The first Antifada was in 1987. The second Antifada really began in 2000, 2001. And when the second Antifada began, the number of innocent Israelis that were being brutally murdered by terrorists uh, claiming that they were freedom fighters, skyrocketed. And as a result, Israel decided that they had to create some sort of barrier in order to make sure that they could um, limit those who were trying to harm the country and the citizens of the country. It's the responsibility of the nation state to protect its citizenry. And that's why the security fence was established. It is not all a wall. There is a portion of it that is a cement wall. The reason for that is because, again, of strategic military concerns in terms of close proximity between Palestinian demographically dense areas that had um, a large number of terrorists coming from and the proximity to uh, close Jewish communities, Jewish centers of population within Israel. The majority of the security fence is exactly that. It's a very um, high-tech, secure fence that allows Israel to track if anyone comes into the country and to watch those areas. Again, Israel is not unique in this situation. There's a major fence between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. There's a major fence between our Texas and Mexico. Um, and this is to protect those citizens of those places. Uh, Israel has said many times that when a peaceful agreement can be made with the Palestinians, portions of that security fence will be dismantled. And there's a reason why it's a fence, and that fences can be taken down. It is not a border. Um, and there were serious conversations about where the fence should be, and Danny Tirza, who is one of the architects of the fence, um, if you ever have the chance to meet him on a trip to Israel, I highly recommend it because he will give you the insider's perspective about the difficulty of really thinking about where a fence should go and how you try to create a situation where you do not do harm to either communities and you limit the inaccessibility and the difficulties that the fence may create. So these were real questions on people's minds who were thinking about how the fence should be constructed. Now, in terms of recognizing the fundamental rights of the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel, Israel does that. Is there complete equality? No, just like there's not complete equality in our country with other minority groups. It's not perfect. Israel is not a perfect society. No society is. And you have serious conversations taking place in Israel conversations between Israeli Jews, between the Israeli non-Jews, between the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. You have Palestinian Arab citizens who are members of Knesset. There are many Palestinian Arab parties within Knesset. You have a Supreme Court member who is a Palestinian Arab citizen of Israel. You have Saeed Kashua, who is one of the most respected and well-known journalists within Israeli society who is a Palestinian Arab citizen of Israel. So is there complete equality? Not by any means. Is Israel constantly trying to improve? Absolutely, just like we as Americans are trying our best to create better relations with our minority populations. But to suggest that the Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel 
do not have fundamental rights and are not recognized is just not an accurate statement and, again, has a clear agenda and a political manipulation of what they are trying to say about Israel. Uh, Rachel, just a second. Before you get to the last one, I just want to let you know we just have about a minute left. Sure. So the last one is a very important one, and that was about protecting and promoting the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes. Um, that's not going to happen, nor should it. Um, it is a shame that there were serious um, casualties in the 1948 war, the War of Independence, often viewed by the Israelis, perceived by the Palestinians as the Nakba or the catastrophe. And again, as I said, war is messy, and one of the consequences of war is a refugee situation, again, similar to other war-torn societies. Israel has said over and again that they would try to create compensation, fair compensation for loss of property for the Palestinian refugees, but by no means can all of those individuals return to the state of Israel, nor should they be allowed, because then you would no longer have a Jewish majority, you would no longer have a Jewish state, and you would have another Arab state, which there are many of. So those Palestinians have faced a serious, um, a serious moment in time in which they lost a part of their identity, uh, but it is not the responsibility of Israel to give them all homes again in Israel, but rather to find a way to compensate them fairly for their property and for their loss, um, but again, not at the expense of the dismantling of the Jewish state. Uh, Rachel Fish, my guest, uh, the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center at Brandeis University. We, we do have about 30 seconds left. If I, I do want to ask you a, a positive question. I want you to give you an opportunity to speak um, about uh, what, what does, why is Israel important and, and what does Israel mean to you personally? Sure. So it's a great question, um, and it's very timely. This week, um, last week was Yom HaShoah HaGvura, the day of Holocaust remembrance and heroism in Israel, when we remember the atrocities committed against the Jews during the Holocaust. This week, we had two memorializations and remembrances. One was Yom HaZikaron, which is the day of remembrance for all of the Israelis who have lost their lives um, since the creation of the State of Israel, which numbers a little bit over 24,000 individuals. Um, and everyone knows someone. Um, in that country who has sacrificed their life for the betterment of the state of Israel. And then it's also Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the Day of Independence, when we celebrate Israel's establishment as a free nation-state. And so reflecting on these holidays that fall um, one right after the other, um, it's important to me to always remember that we, meaning the Jews um, around the world, um, throughout diaspora who choose not to live in Israel, ensure that Israel remains a strong and vibrant home, not only for the Jewish people, but for those who choose to live there. But in terms of the Jewish character of the state and the identity of the state, it's only in Israel that one can fully engage in Jewish life and be part of Zionist ideas and Zionist history as returns as returning to agents of determining one's own history and not being reliant upon others for one's protection or one's identity. And so with the establishment of the State of Israel, it has ensured that for all generations after 1948, 
Jews have a homeland that they can go to in times of distress, in times of persecution, as well as in times of creating, revitalizing, reinvigorating, and developing positive qualities, attributes, and um, ideas, not just for the Jewish communities around the world, but for all of humanity. Rachel Fish, uh, thank you uh, for being with me today, and, and thank you for your important work. It's good to have you on Religion for Life. Thank you. I appreciate it. Next week, part four of my series on Israel-Palestine, my guest will be Rabbi Brant Rosen of Jewish Voices for Peace for another perspective. You've been listening to Religion for Life. For information about this show and links to podcasts, go to religionforlife.com. Be well. Be well.